from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from the Centre for European Reform. I'm Ian Bond, the Foreign Policy Director of the CER, and I'm joined today by this year's Clara Marina O'Donnell Fellow at the CER, Helmi Pillai. So Helmi, over the last year, Europe's been very preoccupied with a real war, a hot war in Ukraine and Russia's military attack on its neighbour. But that's not the only kind of threat that Russia poses to Europe. Ever since the appearance of the so-called little green men in Crimea in 2014, the West has also been worrying about Russia's capacity for hybrid warfare and the threat to Europe's critical infrastructure and even to its democratic institutions. So you've been doing some interesting research on this, which will be published shortly as a CAR policy brief. So perhaps I can start by asking you, what is a hybrid threat? Because sometimes when I hear commentators using the term, it sounds like they mean any bad thing that happens. And, you know, then it becomes such a broad term that it's almost meaningless. Hi, Ian, and thank you for having me in the podcast. If I can just start briefly, as you mentioned, there has been a lot of a lot more concern about Russian hybrid threats. And partly the reason is, of course, the war and the and the tensions between the West and Russia. And then the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines was also a very significant incentive or event that made the EU and, and NATO and member states worry more about critical infrastructure. But in terms of hybrid threats, I guess I could say that it's, it is somewhat of a contested term. And I know that there are many very intelligent people who kind of oppose its use because it can refer to so many things. But generally, hybrid threat is kind of state or non-state action that is intended to undermine a target and influence democratic decision making. And it can really take on very many different forms, including disinformation, cyber attacks, sabotage, economic pressure, energy blackmail. And often it is sort of specifically tailored to the vulnerabilities of, of the target or the targeted state. And what is a common feature of hybrid attacks or hybrid warfare is really trying to remain below the threshold of military action and more generally sort of detection and attribution. And the advantage of this is, of course, that it's less likely to lead to a response, let alone a unified response at an EU level or a NATO level. And for this reason, it can be seen as quite an effective tool for hostile actors like Russia in this case, because Russia views itself to be in a conflict with the West, but doesn't necessarily have the military means to to take on NATO militarily, because the risk of escalation is, of course, so great. And by relying on hybrid tactics, it can sort of target and undermine European countries, and perhaps try to undermine their support for Ukraine, without escalating the situation further or triggering a sort of large scale response from from NATO. 
Right. So, I mean, that's an interesting point about um, attribution and so on. And maybe if we have time, we can come back to the Nord Stream question, since there are some serious questions over the attribution of that. But in general, then, you know, this is something which is designed not to provoke a military response. So perhaps I can ask you, I mean, if we face a direct military threat, it's very clear that it's the government and the armed forces who are primarily responsible for responding to that. But the kinds of threats that you're talking about, particularly when it comes to either sabotage or cyber threats against critical national infrastructure, I mean, that's often targets which are not owned or operated by the government, but by private companies, maybe regulated by the government, perhaps even regulated by the European Union. So in in those circumstances, who currently has responsibility for both preparedness and responding to hybrid attacks? And do we have a division of labor that makes sense at the moment? Yes, well, of course, the main party responsible are national governments. So so that is still who should be focusing mostly on preparing and responding to these. But NATO and the EU have also become much, much more active in this area in recent years. And especially following the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines, the EU has really improved measures to protect critical infrastructure. So, so in January, the new CER, the Critical Entities Resilience Directive, came into force, which is due to be implemented by 2024 in, in national parliaments. And this requires countries to perform stress tests, to harmonize minimum rules, to sort of define what critical infrastructure actually means, because that's not also always clear and then can vary from country to country, and to implement sort of national strategies to to better prepare for these threats. And then NATO as well has prepared for hybrid threats for quite some time. So when it comes to NATO, there is an important sort of deterrence effect because since 2016, NATO has maintained that a hybrid threat could lead to the triggering of Article 5, the, the mutual defense clause of the North Atlantic Treaty. And NATO has also provided these hybrid response teams, which offer sort of targeted support for, for allies if they so wish. And these have been used twice so far in Montenegro and in Lithuania, in Montenegro to help with election interference, and then in Lithuania to help deal with the manufactured migrant crisis on its border. And the EU is also planning to create similar hybrid response teams. So the aim really is to sort of bring expertise and help countries deal with these problems. And the EU and NATO also cooperate partly through the Hybrid Center of Excellence, which is in Helsinki, which is independent from them, but NATO and EU are both members. So so they help provide research and expertise and, and host exercises and, and so on and so forth. But as you mentioned, private companies also have a very important role because much of the critical infrastructure in Europe is privatized. And for this, I still think national governments play a very important role through regulation, but also to perhaps help financially to, to ensure that companies are better prepared to build more redundancy in their systems. So I would really say that 
tackling hybrid threats requires a sort of whole of society approach. And I think in, in Finland and Sweden, this has perhaps been taken the furthest because in Finland and Sweden, this also sort of includes a role for normal people, uh, ordinary citizens who in both countries, there has been sort of a campaign to ensure that people are prepared in case of disruption. I mean, this doesn't necessarily have to be a, an intentional attack. It could just be a natural crisis, but to really ensure that people have sort of cash and water and food and radios and so that there's kind of a plan that if something does go wrong people can survive for a few days whilst the government gets its act together so so to summarize i think it really requires action on all possible levels to effectively deal with these threats because they are so unpredictable and complicated there isn't really one party that can sufficiently prepare or respond to all of them in my opinion yeah, so that's interesting. Now, I, I don't know much about this splendidly named CER directive, but the thing about directives is that they leave it to the member states to decide how to achieve the policy goals that are set out in the, the directive. I mean, one thing I'm, I'm wondering is there's usually a timetable attached to that. So by when does the EU expect to, to have the member states prepared to face up to hybrid threats? I believe the current timeline is by mid twenty twenty four. That feels that feels relatively leisurely. Yes. Well, the EU officials have encouraged member states to implement it sooner as soon as possible, but that is the the deadline currently. Okay. Well, that's definitely something worth watching. So, uh, in turn, I mean, you, you sketched out things that have already been done. Maybe the you know the um, the final question is about your policy recommendations as you've been working on this. Who needs to do what now to ensure that the European response to hybrid threats is more effective? Yeah, so I think there is work to be done on all levels. I think, as you mentioned, with the CER directive, I think with the EU, a real priority is to ensure that member states do follow these rules and, and some kind of harmonization of minimum rules will happen because there has been some resistance from member states, as I understand it, who, you know, maybe worried this should be a, a sort of question of national sovereignty. This is not necessarily an area where, where each member state wants the EU to be active in and some member states have also kind of wanted these rules to be more voluntary and not mandatory so i think the eu's plans are very good but of course implementation is key so i think that's that's one big area i think there's also much to be done at at nato level so i think for nato it's a lot about sort of improving surveillance of, of key critical infrastructure, trying to, to use surveillance to, to detect suspicious activity early and to maybe generally increase naval presence in, in the Baltic Sea, for example, where where it seems like some kind of activity has taken place or might be taking place. I think EU and NATO can also go, go further in their cooperation. So I think there's really room for, for much greater intelligence sharing that's happening at some level, but there is still quite a bit of mistrust. So I've I've heard because, of course, you know, member states uh, in NATO and the EU overlap, but are not completely the same. So so that's sometimes an issue. And I think more frequent training and exercises could really help NATO and EU to cooperate. Then at the national government level, I think there is you know a difference in in how well 
different countries are prepared. And I think especially now with the Russian threat, of course, countries that have been targets before or are just closer in proximity to Russia are maybe better prepared on average. And then countries that are a bit further away or don't face the same kind of threats maybe don't feel the pressure as acutely. I think regulation really is key to to ensure that private companies are are taking the necessary measures to to protect critical infrastructure. And then there are sort of more individual things, for example, increasing the funding of coast guards who play quite a key role in in protecting for example these undersea cables that are quite vulnerable to sabotage efforts and currently coast guards are quite overworked and underfunded so things like this could could really help and then as i as i already mentioned i think i really believe in the sort of whole of society approach so i think in many countries maybe the idea of telling citizens to to stockpile on food and and water would not be a sort of a desirable course of action to take but i think to really ensure that all levels of, of society are are prepared something of this sort could be a, a, an eu if not an eu policy an eu campaign and to to really raise awareness on all levels okay i'm, I'm definitely going to slip in a question about uh, the Nord stream attacks so i i will admit that my working assumption at the beginning was that this had been done by the Russians because it seemed to be something that required a fairly sophisticated capability. Uh, and we knew that the Russians had that capability. There are now a lot of stories coming out suggesting that actually it was the Ukrainians. And it was a few guys, obviously quite professionally trained, but a few guys uh, who chartered a yacht and somehow or other managed to to plant these explosives. So, I mean, without wanting to take a view on, you know, whether that uh, is correct or not, what do you think the implications are in terms of how you counter something like this? Because it seems, you know, like there's quite a significant difference between an operation where you're watching a small number of very specialized Russian ships carrying specialized equipment. And, you know, if you see them hanging around near your critical undersea, undersea infrastructure, you can go and put your own armed forces in that area. And the kind of operation that can be mounted by half a dozen guys on a, on a yacht. So, you know, what does that mean for the kinds of preparations, the kinds of alert status that you that you have to have if you are keeping an eye on on the infrastructure in your waters i mean that is certainly a challenge and and when it comes to for example the underwater cables a lot of those are located very remotely in international waters where it's not necessarily impossible to to have military ships surveilling them but i think one sort of effective strategy is to really publicize on these incidents. So the Netherlands and Belgium, for example, quite recently publicly said that Russian spy ships had been surveilling their critical energy infrastructure in the North Sea. So I think a greater openness on, on the European side could be very helpful. But then in, in terms of protecting all aspects of critical infrastructure, I, I'm not sure that's necessarily possible, at least not in terms of, of maintaining some kind of a naval presence or, or so on and so forth. So then the question really is about, you know, building redundancy to ensure that you cannot just, you know, cut a few, <laughs> a few cables and then cause a, an internet blackout for all of Europe. And this is already happening, but I think there's still more that could be done to, to really 
you know, increase the resilience. So, so not just preventing those attacks from taking place, but to ensure that those critical functions can come back as quickly as possible. But it's certainly a very complicated thing, and that's why it really does require a lot of cooperation on all levels, because there's just so much to protect and, and so many possible threats that it's not very realistic to anticipate what they're going to be exactly and, and to expect only national governments or only the EU, only the NATO to, to re- be responsible for them. Great, great. Okay, well, thank you very much, Helmi. That's been very interesting. Helmi's policy brief, which is entitled Protecting Europe's Critical Infrastructure from the Rising Threat of Russian Sabotage, will be out in the coming days, assuming that the internet is not brought down by hostile action in the meanwhile. So um, watch out for that in your inboxes and on the CER website. And thank you very much for listening. And please subscribe to our podcast wherever you usually listen to your podcasts and leave us a review if you can. So thanks very much, Helmi. Thanks very much to all of our listeners. Thank you, Ian. Bye. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.